podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Whistleblowers is back for the season by Labrooks. Hello and welcome to The Whistleblowers with me, Mark Smith, and over there, sat opposite me, looking resplendent and taller than ever, <laughs> it's Martin Gritton. I'm not standing up, Mark. I, I know, it, I must... You've got your great perspective, haven't they, just? <laughs> and those shins, they never stop growing. It's been a long time, Martin. It has. We've knocked on this show together for a um, few weeks now, since before, way before Christmas. Uh, luckily, not much has happened in that no, time. No, it's been really quiet. It's been a very quiet time in British football. Uh, no, of course, British quite the opposite football. is true. Yeah, British football. I know, I'm including t- in is that. that a sly dig at Rangers? <laughs> Let's just leave I that I wouldn't there. call that football. I, uh, <laughs> I think we should start with... Um, the sort of north end of the Premier League table, Liverpool and Man City. Uh, since we were last on, they've played each other. That was this time last week, pretty much. Um, what do you make of the game? Liverpool City at... Oh, it was great, wasn't it? Man City. I, I, the, the best thing about this whole nonsense between those two is the fact that everyone's like, makes up their mind that City are untouchable before Christmas. Liverpool are untouchable from last week and we sat here and there's, they've got beaten twice in a week and it's just back to a kind of glorious battle between the two of them. So uh, the game was great. Yes. Uh, and well, it, the second half was great. Yeah. I thought the first half lacked a bit of quality, but it was still absolutely engrossing. Um, in that way, not dissimilar to Jack Reacher. No. Uh, really that, really good film, but that not right? technically that. More of a John Wick man. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Have you seen John Wick 2? Obviously. Yeah, also it's very better. good. Yeah, it's better it's, with it's, every it read. It's good, isn't it? Um, the Liverpool-Man City game... I mean, are we, you touched on it there, are we too quick as an industry to label uh, a current team you know, the, the best Premier League team or the best team in Europe or the best, you know, whatever? Yeah. I don't know. Are, are you getting the background noise here? Because I'm really enjoying the fact we're in new digs as well. And we've so, uh, you could tell it's King's Cross because we've just had a mm. motorbike go past at John Wick speed and then we just had <laughs> uh, the police sirens come through. I thought you were running away from a crime scene before the before oh, we started recording. Probably, they're probably looking for us. Um, uh, so you're going to have to repeat your question. I, I'd say that um, my takeaway from that game, though, is that what you were asking? No, I, I was asking, are we too quick to label teams the best dot, 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 you know, mm. in Europe, in the league, of all time, in the Premier League, whatever? Because like you said there, Man City, up to a month ago, credible people in the media were saying Man City are the best ever team we've seen in the Premier League. And, and now, jump forward, yes, they're just beating Liverpool, but they're still four points behind you surely need to be winning multiple leagues in a row if you're going to be given that label. Likewise, now we're seeing Liverpool labelled this and that, and they're not one other thing yet. So what's your take on that? Uh, it's, it's how the teams look under... Momentum's a huge thing for those teams, so both of them have been kind of riding the crest of a wave. I think the way Pep kind of went, do you know what, we're playing Rotherham, I don't mm. care, we're going to steamroll them. Use that as a launch pad, whereas Klopp looked at it as he has done the FA Cup for the last two maybe three well has he been how long has he been there now this is two years. third season yeah so his last two years he's gone out to weak or very weak teams and, yeah. and he's looked at it you know with the same kind of opinion this time so I, I don't I think the club has kind of mis- has underestimated the, 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 the value of momentum particularly going into the new year um, and Man City seem to have the ascendancy again because four points isn't a lot when you look at the it's four not. or five teams that below them that will take points off them okay but as an ex-pro Momentum. Now, that is a, a crucial thing in any title chase. But Liverpool lost against Wolves last night with pretty much an entirely different first eleven. 
So does that momentum affect the yeah, original level? It does? Of course, because that, that permeates throughout the first team. So the first team come back in and it's almost like, it's a bit of an axe to grind. I mean, you can pretend that it doesn't, but the doubt is in the mind. Because imagine you're a Liverpool fan as well. You've kind of, there would have been genuine, Liverpool fans would have gone there and expected to win last night. And they'll have been like, hang on a minute. So as soon as you get that kind of lack of, complete conviction throughout the crowd same with the first team players there's a few in there that that will have rocked a little bit just going you know what they could have done without it yeah but it's met it made them look gettable you can get yeah. atable i totally agree that the different personnel and it's maybe it all it has compounded against those certain players i think um yeah. one of our a, a friend of the pod dan trelfer was tweeting last night going talking about strong teams when someone says it's a strong team well it's strong teams are relevant it's like full strength is the only thing that needs to matter and you can drop one or two personnel but if you're going to change that many people mm. the, the, the kind of ethos around that club and the kind of bulletproof the thing that they built up that season kind of all be kind of shattered to bits yeah that's right because I mean a week ago before the City game I thought Liverpool might not go unbeaten all season but they looked you know very very powerful and strong throughout the entire team and now you fast forward a week and they've lost two in a row Having said that, do you think there's any element of uh, a bit of relief that they're out the cup and they can now concentrate fully on the league? They've got Champions League as well, of course, but, but domestically they can focus yeah, on the league. It's funny, isn't it, when it's seen as an added benefit and now it's the last resort, it's a different sort of thing. So who, who, would, you, who would be your favourites out of those two now? League For the league? Yeah. Um, I still fancy Liverpool because I think they have proven themselves to be so strong in the first half of the season. You look at their second half of the season fixture list, they've played City twice now. They've got to go to United, I think, but there's not many huge games that you look at and go, well, that's that's particularly tough. Mm. Um, they've got Spurs at home. Yeah, I, I sort of still fancy them. Because it's, I, I think that we look at the momentum thing again, you look at the Champions League, people like distraction, extra, you know duress on some of the players but sometimes it works in your favour because you just take that irresistible form and you just sweep you just get into a yeah. kind of zone of sweeping people away from just you know, winning front, just, just yeah. consistently and winning it, games and when the pitches get nicer and the evenings get nicer and then when Liverpool are now just focusing on Saturday to Saturday yeah. oh, so they're like this is our big this is so every game becomes monstrous and it's like you don't get into this uh I think the Champions League keeps players at a higher level. I totally, okay. there is an argument that winning the league is different because it is a duress on the players. But Man City have re redressed that by having forty bloody players. They're amazing. Well, well, okay, you know? who's your favourite then? Who do you? Who do I you think put City as? are the best team because they're just because you can. You know, they've also ridden, they've had the worst player, the best player out, you know, De Bruyne, mm. and they're, they're kind of assimilating him back in. But then Gundogan, 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 or whatever. Gundogan. Gundogan. I always struggle with the. Just in, in terms of the form of their strikers, they seem to have kind of really robust strikers saying this. So Sani will probably get injured. <laughs> but um uh or, or just you know, I don't know. You just look at look at the way that City are set up. They seem to have the the um the ability to bring players in and it doesn't affect them as much as Liverpool. But the way I started this was by saying, Are we too quick to label a team the best ever? We do that every season, yeah, it seems. Yeah, without a doubt. And, I mean, Man City, for me, last season and parts of this season, played the best football I've ever seen in, in this division. Um, but unless they win things 
you know, back to back or three times in a row, they surely can't be in that conversation, can they? No, I, but the league is different now, though, isn't it? Because it is six teams that are just just slugging out up the top because they've got the most money. And and the way that you look at look at way transfers now, the the teams below them, it's the you know bottom of leagues from eight down, isn't it? It's like you know, yeah. it's literally yeah. you you you're dealing with teams that are catchable and teams that are uncatchable there's, 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 three, there's three leagues within this league yeah. now I think. there used to be two and I think there's three leagues there's the top six then there's the middle chunk and then there's those looking for survival this is it yeah this is it so I mean you know the FA Cup's a nice distraction people say you know just focus on that for a minute uh, you know obviously these teams don't respect it in the same way that the Premier League doesn't respect it but uh, I'd certainly say that from our experience I mean me and you were at uh, Grimsby we were a wonderful, and we're part of a wonderful five and a half thousand Unbelievable. fans. Incredible support. Yeah, at and, Palace. And I'd like to say, you know, Grimsby fans as a whole, if you all watch them at home, they're brilliant as well. But at the same time, the away fans, that atmosphere is phenomenal. And um, and at Palace, they frustrated them and worked hard after going one 0 down. VAR was an interesting introduction, yep. which kind of a couple of times reared its head in very crucial matches. I, I think it. I mean, it's a different debate entirely, but it, on certainly the game we saw, the Palace Grimsby game, I think they got the decision right on VAR. It looked like a pretty nasty tackle. But as a player or an ex-pro, those FA Cup distractions, as we've called them, do you feel those games still? Do you feel still leggy during and after? Or, or if it's a good game with a big atmosphere, do you just glide through those? Uh, I mean, yeah, that game will just kind of that won't even stay in your consciousness I mean if you're a lower league team playing those guys it's just a privilege to be there yeah, it yeah. gives you a nice it's a welcome distraction I think the interesting thing about that VAR one you're right that perhaps you got the decision right in terms of it It could be seen as a red card but using the the referee's discretion so this is the one thing that it took it took it out of the referee's hand. So VAR now means that it's a third party. It's not for the ref now to, to, no. to double check a decision. Exactly, yeah. which worries, which makes me concerned because then it's like, well, okay, I understand that. But in the context of the match, mm. he's not gone through him. He's caught him. He's caught him high up. He's uh, like on, on his, his knee, shin. Almost, yeah. Yeah. No, it was his shin pad. I mean, it was his shin pad, wasn't it? High, high up. High up his shin, shin pad. But it, it, essentially, I'm, and I'm not absolving him of that. I'm just saying, if you could contextualise that and say to the guy, and look at that guy and go... Was he malicious? Was he trying to talk? So him? it's still subjective, is the point. Yeah, there's a subjectivity. It's not, it's not about ball it. is over the line or not. It's well, is is this tackle dangerous and red cardable? Well, so that that's the issue. That isn't it? that yeah that that should have been the issue there, and it is. And what I'm saying is that a, a referee has to look at the context of the whole match and say, right, Anders Townsend's up on his feet. Let's look at this and go. Yeah. I can book him two minutes into. Yeah, a, and and I'll, I'll say I'm setting the tone here, but I don't know. I, I looked at the Kearney, the Kearney penalty for Fulham, which was so soft mm. that again, it, all right, technically it's a penalty. Okay, so it's you, very difficult. But you're the ref, then, Grits, in that Palace Grimsby game. You're the ref if there's no on the VAR, field. Fine, yeah. no, fine. But you've seen. Let's say you're you're the guy in the VAR box. Then are you not giving that as a red card? Um, but this is a difficult thing because I because it. He's, uh, the other thing as well, the uh, on a tackle that that's high, I think the follow through, I think you go through and snap someone. If legs planted, the danger that's, that's a career dan- ender, isn't it? Yeah, but that's when danger comes into the danger comes from that. Whereas if you look at the guy, he's gone in. It's it's clearly over exuberant because he's caught him on the end of the tackle. It's not the meat of the tackle that's gone through his leg. But again, I'm arguing semantics here because it's it's I I, I can't say that it's not a red card, but I could say that I've seen yellows given for that, and I've also said you know. Look 
looking at the situation where you're like going, this is a big, big occasion for these guys. The referee could have a word in his ear and go, your car's marked. You yeah. put another one, you put a semi-half yellow tackle in. The, the, the first couple off. of minutes, players are excited. They want to stamp their authority on the game. I understand those tackles happen. Um, and I think the ref on the field actually probably called it right yeah, no, and, that's, gave, and gave again, a yellow. It's just, it, it's just sad and frustrating. That's probably one of those things where if you had three cards and it was you know red, yellow, orange as a middle card, yeah. you'd probably go an orange card, yeah. right? But, but, you know, but we don't, so, yeah, so that's no, it. And actually, Grimsby, to their credit, we're not really talking about this, but they, they were fantastic. For the yeah, entire, but it was incredible. Great, uh, great performance, great experience to be in amongst them. Good fun. Yeah. Uh, so from uh, Liverpool and Man City, who I think... I think we both agree are the front runners. Yeah. Well, those Spurs are there and thereabouts. What, what do you make of them? Well, it's got really interesting now. So I'll see how they rebound off this whole... The January transfer window is another part where Levy um, is exposing him as a shrewd businessman, to, uh, but it's also opening him up to yeah. criticism because they've got no depth. So the fact that players are looking to go away... I read some great stuff like in the Standard tonight about, you know, talking about po- Poch... Bringing his kind of... Very good. Po- for the first time you said Poch. Yeah, Normally thanks. Poc. It's Poch. Um, for the first time he's going, you know, I want to spend my rest of my career here. But, and I love this comment, you know, the caveats that he drops in, talking about Wenger and going, but, you know, if I ask him the 22 years in North London, was it worth it? You know? And it's like, wow. Just giving yourself a back door. If you're a Spurs fan, if you're a Spurs fan, or a Spurs player even, would you rather he didn't talk about these sorts of things and, and didn't talk cryptically about his future and just let the players get on with it and just went day to day rather than this entire thing of I want to be here for 25 years I want to do this and that I just find it a bit of a distraction on its own well he's doing it for financial reasons because Levy's must be the hardest man to negotiate with in the world I, I, if you don't strike while the iron's hot you see how quickly things can change you know mm. he's got Ericsson that's wanting you know double look, the money yeah and he's entertaining ideas to, to that why wouldn't he why wouldn't Poch be having these conversations and he, I think he was getting frustrated with the fact that he gets asked the questions so he's speaking for an hour in front of these yeah. journalists today and he's like guys alright I've, I've addressed this and this is a good time to do it because, I mean, Spurs are playing the best Spurs have played for, I mean, as long as I can remember this. They're, yep. they're playing some wonderful stuff, scoring goals at will. Yeah. Um, this weekend, it's it's a big game. They're home to Man United on Sunday. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, any any thoughts from yourself about where Poch could end up? Do you think Do you think it's a realistic thing that he goes to United or do you see Did, him going abroad? Was, uh, well, if he leaves at all. Yeah, sorry, just the United thing quickly. Isn't it the one where uh, Poch, they pumped United 3-0 at Wembley, didn't they? Was it 3? 2 or 3. Yeah, they yeah. gave them, or maybe 2. They just gave them a proper doing. Yeah. So this would be a incredible sort of yardstick to see where United are now against them and the way that they're currently playing because yeah. you can go there and he's got the personnel to strategically frustrate United yeah. you would think but maybe not but not, then they had the now. FA Cup game last year as well didn't they the, F- the semi-final and United beat Spurs at Wembley last year with a Mourinho team that you know looks like in hindsight and probably at the time as well was low on confidence you just don't know with this United bunch, which brings us on to United actually, because we haven't had the podcast nope. since Jose left. Um, which <laughs> I mean, that, the fact that that night that you got sacked and we didn't do the podcast, <laughs> the one night I we could do. Yeah, yeah. Could, I could hear you rolling in your. It wasn't quite your, not uh, my grave, Martin. No, no. Just rolling in your bed. In anyway, <laughs> I don't even say that. I don't my know why sand you're... bed, my loud bed. I think your coffin that you sleep in. I think uh, United Spurs. 
will be a very, very interesting barometer for how far United have gone. Um, Jose's left. I think most people agree that... Actually, yeah, he looks like he was the problem then. Because the players have responded to just a guy. And I think you could have walked in there, Grits, and been like, all right, lads, you're good footballers. Go, go out pub. there and express yourself. Have a nice time. Let's go to the pub. How, yeah. how much... To today, United players were saying that they would want to see uh, Solskjaer have the job permanently. How much of that is because they feel like they can uh, win things with him and how much of it is to do with he will let them get away with anything? Let's see what happens when they play. That, that's, the, that's why this game's so important. Cause it's the first time they've had a real challenge. See how it goes when things aren't. So it's amazing how quickly things can change in the dressing room and just on the training yeah. pitch. Things get a little bit nasty. Those guys that haven't been playing, what's the rationale for them to get back in the team? Is it throwing themselves around in training? And, you know, seeing how Solskjaer deals with that because I think that's that's a massive challenge for him. Getting everyone to play, you know, doing well on the crest of a wave, it's how teams respond. And that's why I admire, you know, Pep and Klopp, the way that they can kind of rally the troops. And that's they're very, from yeah, the very good at, uh, very good at um, getting everyone back together and going, you know, this is, it's not a problem, this is football. So, um, we'll see. I, I, I It'll be interesting because I, I, Solskjaer, as you said, has been brought in to kind of rally troops rather than bring in personnel. Yeah. What he gets out of, because I don't know what he can, what value he can add to players like Fred or, um, you know, Jones at the back or guys that have just been short on confidence that could become well, I mean, Sissoko-esque I, I, brilliant I players this season. That, you know, you I never know. That anyone that comes in who doesn't uh, have this air of, who doesn't have this, this ability to humiliate the players if they were to make a mistake. And as long as you've got yeah. that, you, yeah. you're already one it up, yeah. really. So for, for me, the, the, the thing with the social appointment is uh, I appreciate the fact that they are now five years without winning anything and really four and a half years or four years of playing bad football, you know, non-attacking football, quite pragmatic, quite defensive, not just with Jose, but with Moyes and particularly with Van Gaal. Yeah. And now it just seems quite liberating that they've got someone who's happy for them to attack and it does feel like a throwback to Ferguson in, in terms of they're happy to yeah. go forward in numbers and push fullbacks on and do whatever. But I do also think that there's this element with United at the moment where they've just gone and got in the, the guy from 99, the guy who scored the winning goal. And it's like, look at this. This is the throwback to United. Yeah, it's what yeah. it used to be. And Peter Schmeichel's now throwing his hat in to be director of football. And you know, what, 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 what is going on? <laughs> what, is, what, is, is Jesper Blancas going to be head groundsman? Or what's going on? And we used to laugh at Liverpool when they did this. Like a new manager would come in and, and you know, he'd talk about the triumphs of the past and the tragedies of the past and the fans would greet those things and say, yeah, well, that's, that's it's great that he's addressing it and, you know, he's, yeah. he's speaking the tongue that we want to hear. But now it's happening with United and you've got to laugh at that as well. You can't just laugh at Liverpool when they do it. it well, at the minute, it seems to me like he is just like really sucking up to his teacher in Ferguson yes, but and it's too much yeah listen but you, the, the infrastructure he's put behind him so Carrick uh, knows those guys in the dressing room because he's come straight through so he's in the perfect position yeah but well I was just going to get onto that so Carrick's in the perfect position to go 
I'm respected. Listen to me, guys. You know, I'm, and he was a leader on the pitch. He's still there for a reason. Feelings come in because it's like, oh, this is the old guard. And this is the guy that keeps the ship steady, you know, and let the manager do his job. Uh, Solskjaer, if he's come in, is a kind of puppet or whatever, but he's got managerial experience. And, and from what I've seen of him, he speaks... As you said, he does. He might be a suck up. Let's see how I'm he does against. No, no, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm a huge fan of him. So it's a team behind. Him. I just think it's a bit. It's a bit saccharine, is all mm. I think. It's yeah. a bit overly sentimental. I think Solskjaer, he's absolutely got football credentials. I mean, okay, it's Norway. It's not the top top level, but well, he, knows, he knows what he's doing. And just look at the way that he's put his arm on his players. You know, Di Matteo won a Champions League doing this, yep. just delegating and letting the squad sort of look after itself. There's no. That's good management. Isn't it? Totally. And and you t- say saccharin, it's, you know, it's an old Scottish adage, all sugar, all shite. And they've literally gone from all shite to, because they've gone from Van Hal, Mourinho, Moyes, the most dour, uh, the guys that have never seen a spoonful of sugar and yeah. just being able to make anything palatable other than let's worry about something else, let's worry. It's the, this, this positivity. I mean, Ferguson wasn't... Ferguson was not a positive man, other than the way that he his teams play football. Played football yeah. Which, yeah. I, but I, and then that's it. I'm, I'm doing him a disservice here because his Aberdeen team, when before he took over United, was absolutely irresistible as well. Incredible going forward. So yeah. the, that's his ethos. I just think he's like, let's keep it in house and we don't give away, you yeah, know, any exactly. nonsense. That, that's right. Um, I think also with with United, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that we never really bought into this idea that they don't have any quality players. And that was sort of the narrative that Jose was pushing. He needs better players, he needs better players in his squad in order to do anything. And actually now what we're seeing is, for example, Lindelof's a, a good example of this. We were told United was signing a ball-playing centre-half. Yeah. And yet for the 18 months that Jose had him, you just saw a scared, a scared centre-back who never played the game before. Yeah. Then at the World Cup, you go, oh, that's the guy they thought they'd yeah, sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now with Solskjaer, all of a sudden, he's beating three, four men. He's yeah, putting a ball in. It. And it's... it's how much of that is confidence? I mean, how, how, much, confidence, how much better do you feel as a player yeah. when, you, when you feel confident? It's all confidence. And, and the, the, it, it's more acute when when things aren't going well because everything's down on you, isn't it? Everything, everything becomes more apparent. Everything's magnified. And then you you hear the voices. You you kind of, yeah. you, before the games, you overthink. As soon as you think about anything other than football, then you're distracted and the it'll itch. affect you. And at that level, you're, you're, you know, you're yeah, in trouble. Yeah, yeah. And you're overthinking the, the basics of football, striking the ball, passing the ball, decisions, right? Yep. That's it. Um, listen, I think that'll do us for the first half. We've got a uh, second half. Uh, we're going to be lucky enough to speak to Joshua Robinson, uh, author of uh, The Club, How the Premier League Became the Richest, Most Disruptive Business in Sport, uh, who will give us some insight on that. Um, that's something to, to pick up. Um, so we'll speak to you after the break. The Whistleblowers is back for the season by Ladbrokes. Welcome back. It's Martin Gritton and Mike Smith with the Whistleblowers. Mark, good to have you. It is, yeah, it is. All of that was correct. Well, (laughs) so I'm going to cut to uh, a a chat we had with Joshua Robinson. Again, uh, just to remind you, author of The Club, How the Premier League Became the Richest, Most Disruptive Business Sport. Joshua's... uh, a highly esteemed journalist for the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think he currently resides in Paris, but he's been. This book's a fascinating insight into the the finances behind the Premier League. So we're, we're absolutely privileged to have uh, uh, Mr. Joshua Robinson on the call. Joshua's just uh, a co-author of a book called The Club: How the Premier League Became the Richest, 
most disruptive business in sport. Joshua, I think I've, I've kind of explained that correctly from the start. I would imagine it's all given away in the title. Exactly. Thanks for having me, guys. It's, uh, it's really the story of, um, of how in the space of 25 years, which is in the grand scheme of things quite short, even in the grand scheme of, of English football, um, the Premier League went from this kind of, uh, I mean, you know how football was in the 80s, this place where you were taking your life into your hands going to games. Uh, the standard was poor. Uh, the, the stadiums were in disrepair. And today, the Premier League is probably the, you know, the glitziest, most watched perm- uh, sporting product on the planet. Um, and it's, it's really the story of how we got here from there. How, how much of that do you put down to uh, Sky TV and B Sky B picking it up in 92, 93? Well, that was huge. That was um, a, a, one of the major uh, factors that drove its initial success and that made, uh, that, that sort of validated the whole breakaway in 92. Um, and you have to remember that for Murdoch and Sky, it was a huge gamble as well. Sky was failing um, before 1992. They were losing about a million pounds a week, um, which is which is crazy. Um, and so what happened was Murdoch realized that there were two things that were going to make his uh, pay TV system work. One was soap operas, and the other was football. He was not a big sports fan, but he understood enough to realize that football would get people to subscribe. What, what was the soap opera? I'm not uh, just soap operas in general. Oh, I, uh, I think, but I think in the end we we realized the soap opera was the Premier League. Yeah, well, that's it. And that, that, that is, in a way, that is how they've marketed it. I it think is. I always think of the Premier League as being um, a, a story with narratives and, and subplots. And the actual football, a lot of the time, as we've seen on the podcast, we talk about all things around the game. The actual football itself sometimes can be a side issue. Exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, people ask whether the, the Premier League could have happened in another country or whether some other country's league could become what you know, the circus that the Premier League is today. And I always have to say no, not just because of the, you know, the Premier League nailed its timing. It, it came up at the same time as um, sort of the uh, develop, certain developments in technology and satellite TV and the right people were around at the right time. But not it, it's not just because of that. It's also because of the particular British media environment that made it, one, you know, the the tabloid environment may, means everything gets supercharged. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, the length of the graph that the Etsy had the other night from mm. <laughs> between yeah. City and Liverpool. Everything becomes a story. And not only that, but it's all happening in English, which means it, it's so easily exported around the world. We we sometimes forget the really simple factors that uh, the playing Premier League's favour. Yeah, it's very true. Um Interesting thinking of it in the in the terms of that as well, in terms of how the, how the product is marketed, in terms of a, a soap opera, even to the fact that imagine if there was a Sky Sports News that was a, a soap opera equivalent that was just constantly bombarding you. The sport, sort of sports marketing that we get, and I totally get the importance of sport in terms of you have to watch it live, and that's what makes it marketable because no one's going to watch a game two days later, you know. That's right. But the fact that that they just bombard you with this and then they convince you of these things that, you know, uh, I think there's a there's a great Michelin Web sketch, isn't there, when they're kind of talking about the importance of every game is like the next one's the biggest and the next one. And it's 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 an incessant, relentless thing. But the book the book also goes moves on into how then that was perhaps infiltrated by the big money men and the big businessmen of the world, isn't it? Exactly. And, you know, there are a couple of turning points. 
One is 2003 when Robert Bramovich comes into the Premier League and eventually settles on Chelsea. He had been mistakenly told by UBS that uh, Arsenal wasn't for sale. And there's a story that we were told about him driving up the uh, Tottenham High Road on his way to meet with Daniel Levy. And he turns in the Mercedes to the, uh, the Sibneft associate who's with him and says, uh, looks around and says, this is worse than Omelette, which is a particularly <laughs> grim spot where Sibneft had a refinery. Um, oh my! So he didn't buy Tottenham either. Wow! And that was his, um, but, that was his rationale. <laughs> but there, there was a uh, that that was a major turning point, as we know. You know, it it, it um, really upended the transfer market and put a started putting the idea in everyone's head that hang on, we can make a lot of money not just by owning football clubs, but by selling them. Um, and there are people here in a whole different league of rich from uh, everything that we've known before. It's really the the turning point from, you know, the profile of owners when the Premier League started was often locally self-made millionaires, um, people who had grown up in the community of their club and wound up just buying the team they supported as kids. You know, at that point, after Abramovich, we're really starting to see the influx of foreign owners who are buying them for all kinds of reasons, whether it's as a trophy or as a foreign investment or as um you know, as we in the case of Man City, kind of a, a branding exercise for their Gulf Petro State. Yeah, with with that in mind, where do you see the medium to long term future of the Premier League with this type of owner? You mentioned there the Man City ownership being essentially a, a, a PR project, if you like, for Qatar and the Middle East. Do you see this as being a sustainable um, a, a business for them long term, or is it just something that they can have? as a, an emblem or a totem of their strength in business? Well, look, as long as, as, long as the Premier League remains profitable and as long as it, remain, as it retains the reach that it has around the world, um, you know, it's in 185 countries every weekend, which puts pretty much every other league on the planet to shame. Uh, as long as it has that reach, there will be people who can find ways to use that to their advantage. Um, now, the, the long-term future of the Premier League May have other challenges, and one is the kind of, is the brewing tension that's a, a really new thing between the big six and the rest, um, especially over international rights. Because the UK market is kind of saturated, and for the first time we saw domestic TV rights go backwards in terms of a you know a pound value. Um, they all realized that the real opportunity for growth was uh, foreign rights. And those are split up evenly or were split up evenly between the 20 clubs. And that's a major source of frustration for the big six who say, listen, people in China and Nigeria and the United States aren't tuning in to watch Fulham Huddersfield. They're tuning in to watch the big six. They want to see Liverpool and Man United and Chelsea. Um, so if we're driving all that, all those audience figures, then why aren't we making more money? And last year, the Premier League cut them a slightly larger slice of an already huge pie. Um, to buy themselves a few years, but this this issue is not going away. And so as long as you have that tension plus the vague threat of a Super League hanging around, those are going to be the uh, the challenges to the Premier League business model going forward. Not wanting to take the side of the big six, but no one from Fulham and Huddersfield is probably tuning in to watch that either. So <laughs> there's a challenge there, and I think we've probably seen it magnified in some of the, the foreign leagues. Yeah. 
just touch, touching on the foreign own, ownership there, we, we, we kind of focused on the first half of the show uh, a little bit about the, the, the obvious tussle between Man City and Liverpool. Um, did you have any insight into kind of John Henry's involvement in Liverpool and, and kind of how, uh, how he's transformed the club? Yes, yeah, so John Henry was one of the people we spoke to extensively for the book. Um, and he he was a fascinating guy because he really opened up and it, it was and, and was very candid with us about his changing perspective over the last eight years uh, at Liverpool because he came in kind of as a, the classic American owner who thought, you know, he looked at this business and thought, it's it's it looked at the Premier League and thought it's really backwards in many ways. It's undermarketed. You know the clubs themselves are undermarketed. They uh, need a bit of uh, good old American innovation and, and elbow grease. And he was going to apply. You know he brought in the Moneyball philosophy at the Boston Red Sox and broken a an eighty something year curse to uh, to re- and revolutionize the way they did things. So he was going to do all of that at Liverpool and very quickly learned that the Premier League is not just the Wild West, but that the people you're dealing with on a day-to-day basis, you really don't know who you can trust and who's a charlatan, um, mm. because there's a fair few of them running around. Yeah, no, absolutely. Go on, sorry, they, there were so many things he couldn't uh, he couldn't predict, situations that he just wasn't ready for. I mean, there was the failure of his initial Moneyball approach. Um, there was the Suarez fiasco. Uh, there was the fact that contracts in the Premier League really don't mean what you think they mean, which is why he decided that when uh, Arsenal tried to trigger uh, Suarez's uh, release clause, he just wasn't going to accept it because no one else was respecting contracts, so why should he? Um, So all of that sort of contributed to uh, a wake-up call for for John Henry, and then he realized more recently, you know, you can be as smart as you want, but unless you're prepared to spend the cash... Mm -hmm then you're not going to really compete. And we've seen that over the last couple of years. Um, you know, $75 million for Virgil van Dijk is, a, is an admission that, listen, we've identified them. They've done well to do that, but we're still going to have to stump up the money. But at the same time, we've, we've seen an uh, anomaly with Leicester breaking into that top four. Not only that, but winning the whole thing with a much, much smaller budget. Do you see anyone uh, or a- any individual person or, or, or chief exec or club who has who could have the same uh, impact as a, a Billy Bean at, at uh, use the moneyball analogy there? Do you see anyone doing that in the next few years, or is Leicester a one-off that won't be seen again? I would love it if someone did, but I think Leicester was, um, you know, Leicester was an incredible story, and I think we all enjoyed it. And the only people in the country who might not have enjoyed it was the Big Six. Um, because what we saw after that was a real circling of the wagons from then. That was when we first started to hear about um, increasing payments to the big six from foreign rights. We saw everybody go out and spend a ton of money after that. City brought in Guardiola. United went for Mourinho, which at the time was uh, not viewed quite as badly as it is now. You know, United also went out and broke the world transfer record. That was the moment of, we really can't let this happen again from the big six. And I think we've seen this season in particular, the gap growing from the big six to the rest. So unfortunately, I don't see another Leicester happening in uh, in the near future, but I hope I'm wrong. Well, uh, listen, I, I really appreciate you sharing some of the thoughts from the book there. I, um, Saw some great testimonies. We talked about uh, John Henry, but Billy Bean, there was a, there was a lovely testimony from him. I'm t- I'll take it. Yeah, that's, uh, <clears throat> I've known Billy a long time and he's, um, one of the smartest guys in baseball, and he's got some pretty interesting thoughts about football as well. He's um, 
he spends a lot of time watching the Premier League these days. Well, that's, uh, that's good to hear. Listen, what, where can we get a hold of the book, Joshua? Uh, all good bookshops, some bad ones, and uh, Amazon, Waterstones, and everywhere, anywhere else you buy books. Marvellous. It's well, out on Thursday, January 10th. Marvellous. Well, 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 we'll link the listeners to it afterwards so they can they can check it out for themselves. But listen, thanks for sharing your thoughts, and, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more about the book and perhaps more from yourself very soon. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, Joshua. What do you think that, Mark? Great chat from Joshua. What a chat. What a guy. One of the all-time chats, I'd say. He is. So, yeah, that, that book's available on Amazon, etc. Um, you should get it as well. It is, it is a great read. It is a great read. He's, um, as a deep dive, very kind of uh, reputable and um, one that covers his... So no fake news. He's, he's what, what no we haven't got. He, he's an informed, an informed football journalist, which that's is that. not the reason you tune into the whistleblowers. No, that's it. So <laughs> without further ado, that might draw his uh, line under that one. Mark's good to have you on the show again. Thanks, thanks for having being me. Being a host and all that. <laughs> I should be saying that to you. <laughs> yeah, no, Great you to have you, Martin. Well, it's... Uh, going on if, my show? If anyone's still listening by this point, uh, we will speak to you next week. That was the whistleblowers. The Whistleblowers is back for the season by Labrooks. This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.